I'm driving at 6.30 in the morning, the seats reclined so I could be comfortable, my heels on the gas pedal flat to the floor of my mother's car going 85 miles an hour, according to the police. And I fell sound asleep on the Trans-Canada Highway. Woke up when we hit the gravel. I remember thinking, this is the first time I've ever flown. And I was just looking at this sailing back. And then the car hit the, the nose on the first boulder on the way down. We tumbled all the way down, all the way down the mountain, end over end over end over end, endlessly, it seemed like. We were like two dice in a jar. We didn't have seatbelts on. Well, hey guys, and welcome back to the Kingdom Business Podcast. You know, every week, my goal here is to bring you value, play a small part in helping you on your business journey. And I do that by teaching some of the sessions myself and then bringing on guests that I think will play a part in your success. And I'm always trying to find people that can bring something both spiritual and practical. And so today, my guest, uh, we're in for a real treat. He has been in the marketplace a long time. Um, as a minister in the marketplace, and uh, he is a business advisor of sorts. He may put better language to that, but essentially has spent uh, a long time producing products and helping large businesses, Inc. 500, Fortune 100 businesses, grow their sales, grow their performance, and so we're in for a real treat with some practical training. Hey, Michael, thanks for joining us. Why don't you tell the Kingdom Business Nation who is Michael Pink? Wes, thank you so much. It is an honor. I've actually been looking forward to our call today just to connect with my friends and those in Australia that I long to meet face to face. So thank you for the opportunity. You know, I, I was telling my wife just before the call, knowing that, you know, people ask that question a lot, like, who is Michael Pink? And I was thinking about it. And here's here's how I would characterize it this way. When a man walks into the room and he's carrying a bucket of gold, does anybody really care much about the bucket? What they want to know is what's inside that bucket. If you've got a bucket of gold, if you've got the goods, the details of the actual bucket, whether it's blue or green or rusty or not, doesn't matter. It's got a bucket of gold. That's it. And so I feel like in many respects, and I say this all the time, I made it the same stuff as anybody else. But I have a ton of gold that I've mined over the years. I mean, I, I started off, you know, I had broken home coming up and all that kind of stuff. And when I was 18, right around my 18th birthday, um, my best friend led me to Christ. Now, the interesting thing about that was he was not a believer. In fact, he was adamantly against it. And to prove how fallacious Christianity was and how empty of, of anything it was, he told me what to do. He said, go into your room when I leave your house. I was living at home. Get on your knees, pray, ask God to forgive your sins, ask Jesus to come into your life. You'll find out there's nothing to it. And he said, and above all, be sincere. <laughs> so I did what he said, and I was very sincere, and God dropped in that room. I mean, I expected nothing. I was told nothing would happen, and he came in, and it just overwhelmed me. It was an amazing experience. So from that time forward, I, you know, I was like, I need to know this man. I need to know him, God. And so I began that search. And it wasn't long, 19 years of age, I got into sales, selling life insurance and then into copier sales. And for the next several years, I was always looking for, is there any biblical material from a Christian perspective that'll teach you how to sell, how to be successful in, in that arena? And in Canada, where I was growing up, I could not find anything like that. That was a little disappointing. Um, so God had to actually take me and show me, we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later, and I began to find 
wait a minute, there is a, a plethora, a, a virtual cornucopia of wisdom in the Bible, not just the stuff that's like the principles. People talk about principles of trust and truth and integrity and hard work and ethics, all of which are good. But you and I both know, Wes, I'm sure you've counseled a lot of people like this. They're good men and good women of integrity, honesty, hardworking, and they're struggling. Am I right? Yep. Do you see that? Yep. Yep. Okay. So we need we need more than that, which is why you do what you do, which is why I do what I do. We provide a lot more than that. And so over the, the number of years since then, I've you know basically unearthed buckets and buckets of gold of the wisdom of God found both in the scripture and in natural law and applied it successfully to first of all sales and then to business and help companies as you said fortune 100 companies and a lot of smaller companies mostly uh, grow their business or survive or, or do turnarounds and all those kinds of things and so I've been doing that and putting my heart into that and at the same time pouring into people because the heart of God I think is for the people business is just a context where we get to experience them. Yeah, that's awesome. All right, so now let's go one whole layer deeper, right? So you've worked with that many people. Um, the kind of people that listen to this show, are, you know, they would be 98% committed Christians in business. Um, and so I guess the question that I ask myself and I wanna ask for you to see if you've got a slightly different perspective, you see all the patterns and the trends. What, why is it, how is it that some people can be if you just take Australia or the US, like born in the same country, given a very similar opportunity, same marketplace, some people make it work and build a great business and some people don't. I, I'm trying to get a handle on this because I think our audience will, will it'll, it'll help them kind of get some clarity. What would you say are some patterns and trends of, of either people that do or people that don't tend to make a good success out of business? Well, you know, it's not that hard. And it comes down to a couple of very simple things, so simple that people don't do it. But number one is actually knowledge. Just learning, being an aggressive or a disciplined learner. In fact, the definition of disciple means disciplined learner. So having an avid uh, disciplined learning program, reading books, studying other people, Obviously, I study the scriptures at length, but other books as well. And having that learning program is huge because, for example, when I started a publishing company back in 1988, and I sold it in 1993, and when I sold it to a bigger company, World Bible, uh, they looked at all the customers I had. I had, I don't remember now, but thousands of customers. The customers were stores. I sold the stores. And they said, man, you've got all kinds of customers that we don't have. And he's he said, because we only call on stores that are basically the top 20% of the stores that do 80% of the volume. It looks like you've been calling everybody in the world, which I was. And it was the old Pareto principle, the 80-20 rule. But for five years, I was unaware of that. So I was calling every store in every state in the union because I didn't know, I didn't have the knowledge to think I'm going to get a much better return if I just call the top 20% and leave the other 80% to be handled by the distributor, which is what the company who bought my company did. Simple fact, knowledge is a huge game changer. I have a friend, I've mentioned it to you before, Peter Daniels, he lives in Australia, near Adelaide. That man was illiterate bricklayer and uh, third generation welfare recipient, 26 years of age. He gave his life to Christ at a Billy Graham crusade. 
He taught himself to read and write, took a while, but he finally figured that out. And he says, he once he learned how to read, he became an avid reader. He read about 5,000 biographies. He studied art and, and, and economics and, and medicine, all kinds of fields. He just, he just consumed voraciously. And that illiterate, uneducated, he never passed a grade of school. He never passed one first grade, second grade, third grade. He didn't pass anything. That guy eventually got, uh, see, I think three or four honorary doctorates, three or four ambassadorships, and became incredibly successful. He says what he did was he basically fed his brain. He said, I invested in myself. And I've noticed that because I've served a lot of clients over the years. And the most successful ones by far are avid learners, avid readers. And number two, to go with that, to go with that, they all that I can think of go outside and, and bring in ex experts that are help them in certain areas, coaching, that kind of thing. They bring those kind of people in to help them in areas that they may not have strength. They're not afraid to say, hey, I don't know that very well. Can you help me? And that's two things that I see. I learn and I take coaching and I, and I invest in myself. I invest in my brain is the way Peter Daniel said. I invest in my brain and doing those two things is absolutely huge. Now, as a Christian, I go further than that because, you know, the, <clears throat> the beginning of wisdom, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And so that my relationship with Jesus Christ actually guides me along that way as well into knowledge, wisdom, and understanding, the trifecta that Solomon talks about over and over again. But I think that's where people don't do it. They want, especially in the Christian community, it seems to me, they want the 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 miraculous part, you know, like just pray and boom, now I my business is thriving. You got to learn like anybody else, and they have to they have to master certain skills, and learn this big lesson. And you said it today. I love what you said in your introduction. Is there's a focus on delivering value. How do you deliver value? First of all, you have to define it. It has to be value that somebody else appreciates because value is in the eye of the beholder. And then how are you going to find the value? Well, you got to find the value by finding out where their pain is so that you can solve it. And so people tend to think, I'm just going to create something and, and you know build it and they will come. Well, you know what? Build it and they don't come most of the time. <clears throat> so those things, learning, education, knowledge. And I'll give you one last thing on this, a little bit of science. One of the books are written in God's Best Kept Secrets. This one here is called The Perfect Business Model. And there was a study done in Louisiana, in America. And they they took a, a bunch of live oak trees, as a type of oak tree. And on half of them, they just let them get whatever rainwater fell. The other half, they put a continuous drip to the roots of water. Now, in the Bible, water is analogous to information, to the word. Bible talks about the washing of the water of the word. It talks about the knowledge of the Lord, uh, the glory of the Lord covering the earth as the waters cover the sea. There are numerous scriptures that compare information or knowledge to water. And then we, we look in the scriptures because the Bible says that the hidden things of God are clearly seen or clearly revealed by the things he made, even as eternal power is divine nature. And so I can look at nature and say, okay, God, how does this work? And what we found is the trees that got a continuous drip of information water continuous drip of that they grew 13 times more than the trees that didn't in other words they, they are all 18 inches tall 
at the end of a year, a year later, the ones that got the rainwater, whatever came their way, were now two feet tall. They were 24 inches. They grow in six inches, which was a 33% increase, which people go, that's good. But the ones that had the continuous, continuous learning, the continuous drip of water, they went from 18 inches to uh, six feet tall, or eight feet tall. They were they, they grew they grew six and a half feet, so they were eight feet tall in that same time period. So I'm telling you, people will invest in their mind, in their brain, and I would suggest getting the right kind of information, which I like to you know I, I ascribe to biblical truth. Get that as much as you can. That is where the big increases can come, and what very few people are willing to do. Oh hey, I hope you're enjoying this week's episode. Listen, I'm just here training a group here in this room, but I need you to subscribe to my channel. Guys, do you think they should subscribe to the channel? Guys, please subscribe. (laughs) That's really cool. And uh, so so Peter Daniels, obviously an Australian. Uh, I'd love to get him on the podcast subject to his health. Um, So we might, uh, for those who don't know who he is, we might might close that loop for you. You know, I know for me... um, you know, I, at 14 years old, I had a reading age of six and I was terrible. Um, but when I found business books, everything changed and just devoured them and, and, and spent well over a quarter million dollars on my own education, seminars, books, courses. Like I've got libraries full of books that I've read. But I want to go to you and go, OK, what does it look like for you? And, and how did it look like for you in the early years? Was it books? Was it courses? Like consistent? Did you read multiple? Have you got some real handles on how you did or how you do your learning program? Sure. You know, I started off reading motivational books, uh, The Greatest Salesman in the World, I think it's called, by Og Mandino. I, I, I read uh, See You at the Top by Zig Ziglar. I read The, the, the Magic of Thinking Big by, uh, I think his name is Schwartz. Those are the books that were available to me back in the 70s. But in 1985, I moved down to the United States. And I had just finished uh, a, a, about a year or so of selling copiers in Toronto. I did not do well. I moved to the States. I came down and the Holy Spirit, which by the way, he still speaks. God still speaks. And he spoke to me. I didn't ask him. I wasn't praying. I wasn't fasting. I was driving on the interstate through town. And he pointed out a building. He said, that's where you're going to work. And I looked at that and I thought, what is that? Oh no, copiers. God, I don't want to sell copiers because I had done poorly in it. But I've learned to obey. So I went, ultimately applied for the job and they put me out in a branch office. Now, here's the thing. They said to me on my first day, they said, now, Michael, here's what we expect from you. For every four or five clients that you, customers that you demonstrate our equipment to, you should make one sale. The national average is one out of four. We don't expect any sales your first month to your second month and four a month thereafter. So in 90 days, I was supposed to make six sales. I never saw anybody do that. I was with the company two years. I didn't see anybody do that, but that's okay. That was the goal. When I got home, my wife looked at me and she said, what, what's wrong? I said, they're asking me to sell one out of four. And she said, what's the problem? I said, that means I have to accept a 75% failure rate. What farmer plants four rows of corn and praise to God that only one of them comes up. And I picked up my Bible was, and I said, I'm going to study this. I'm going to find principles and strategies and tactics starting with the book of Proverbs. And I'm going to apply them directly to sales. And instead of selling one out of four, 
I intend to sell one out of one. People thought I was nuts. I went to report at the branch office for duty. The, the manager looked at me and I, he said, Sonny, what are your goals? I said, well, I've decided I, I want to sell one out of one. And he looked at me like he made the worst hiring decision of his career. Fair enough. Straight commission job. They already have my business cards printed. I'm off and running. 90 days later was our first company quarterly review that I attended, which was the way they did it. You go to a golf country club and it would be business in the morning and a golf game in the afternoon. And that's how they did it. Every salesman had to get up in front of the other 20 some odd sales guys, put your results on a screen behind you and say basically this, here's how many calls I made, here's how many demos, here's how many sales, and here's how many dollars. Everybody had to do that. When it became my turn, I said, I, you know, I've been here 90 days, I've done X number of calls, I've, I've done 22 demonstrations and I'm pleased to tell you that I, I also have 22 sales. It was one out of one, it was three and a half times a number I never saw anybody hit. And I worked less than anybody. I'd found something in the Bible. And it started, to give you an example, it started in Proverbs 3. Proverbs 3, this is, this is where people, Christians, sometimes miss it. They read the Bible for, you know, spiritual en enlightenment and all those good things. <clears throat> but when it gets to something like Proverbs 3, when it says, bind mercy and truth around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart, and you will find favor and good understanding in the sight of God and the sight of man. And I thought, I want favor from God. I want, like, maybe he'll help me see something I was going to miss. I want, when it's between me and a competitor, the customer to look and think, you know, I don't know. I just like Michael better. I want favor. So what most people do <clears throat> is they, when they finish reading verse 3 and 4, they go to verse five, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not onto your own understanding and all that ways acknowledge him, he'll direct your paths. And they keep reading to the end of the chapter. And then they close it, maybe say a prayer and go on to work. What I did is I say, God, how do I bind mercy around my neck? What does that mean? How do I write it on my heart? What do you mean? How do I walk that out? Show me, help me. Because you see, Wes, I had earnestly told the Lord, I don't want recognition. I don't want to be, you know, like, oh, he's a sales star, whatever. I, I was failing the last copy job I had. I, I said, I want to be a testimony, a witness for you. I want to give credit and honor to you. Because as Solomon said, poor men, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, have no voice. It says that a poor man's wisdom is despised. They don't have a respect for that. So I said, I want to be able to do so well that I have a platform to honor you. Well, anyway, that was a goal that nobody had ever hit. 100%, three and a half times quota. I'm off to the races. I finished the year setting a record for the most copiers ever sold in a single year by anybody, even though I was in the territory less than 11 months. And it was my first year, so I did not have the benefit of repeat business. But at the Christmas party, Wes, no, this is important. The president said to me, Michael, we've never had anybody ever do anything like this. If you have any ideas on how we can get our sales team, you got, we got a lot, a lot of sales guys, Doing what you've done, our new guys especially, he said, I'd really like to hear them. And I put my hand on his chest. I tapped him on the chest and I said, John, I don't have any ideas. I have the solution. When you want to know what it is, you give me a call. And that was at the Christmas party. Well, he called me. And the first week in January, they gave me a sales team of five, the, the guys that were struggling the worst. They wanted to know if what I knew was transferable 
or was it my personality or as they suggested, Michael Pink must be from Mars, whatever they thought. And I knew it was transferable, but we had to prove it out. Well, 10 months later, my team, their results were up, not 30%, not 130%, but 430% year over year. So they made the trainer for the whole company. The point of this story is it's not the bucket. I'm just a bucket, but I had a lot of gold and I was able to transfer that gold, that wisdom to people. So I did an awful lot of learning, looking in the scripture saying, God, show me, teach me from your word, how to walk out your wisdom in a practical way, in a competitive dog eat dog marketplace without compromising, without using pressure, without using manipulation, without using any of the garbage, cheesy techniques that are out there in abundance in a way that actually honors and glorifies you. Show me how to do that. And I will do that. Mm -hmm. And that's what happened. And that's where I did most of my study. That's awesome. So staying on sales, um, you, uh, cause now, now I'm thinking about our listeners, right? So they're going to get the favor from the Lord, right? So they're going to get Lord's going to move on people's hearts and grant them favor. On the practical side, what are some of the things that were the transferable skills um, possibly that you see is missing in sales, like, you know, diligent follow-up or your presentation? Like, what are some of the things that you think play out in 2022, 23 that a lot of people miss? Good question. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a template in the scripture called the Tabernacle of Moses. It has three levels, level one, level two, level three, called the outer court, the inner court, and the holy of holies. The outer court deals with character and competence. It deals with practical principles, practical strategies that you can learn by emulating, by copying other people. That's where we learn, by copying others. Level two is the inner court where you learn by copying God. And level three is where you learn by working with him in the miraculous, if you will, what people think of as supernatural, where you know incredible things happen. So level one, like somebody realizes, okay, in business, you don't get what you deserve, you get what you negotiate. So how do you negotiate? Well, I've read lots of books on negotiating, but the best book ever written that I know of was written by the Apostle Paul. It's called the Book of Philemon. Because Paul was in prison for his faith, and there was a guy there, a runaway slave named Onesimus, who was in there for who knows what. And Paul led him to Christ, in the process found out that he was a runaway slave from a guy named Philemon, and in that day in the Roman Empire, 60% of the population were slaves. If you ran away, it was an automatic death sentence. And Paul wanted this runaway slave to go back to him and to not be punished, not be killed, but to be welcomed as if it was Paul himself walking through the door. And we know that that basically happened because Onesimus went on to become a bishop in the early church of Ephesus. So what was in that letter? What was in the letter that he wrote? Well, I've, it's only 25 verses, but I got 31 strategies that I pull out of that that are absolutely amazing. But do they work? I don't teach anything until I know it works. I put it in the fire of the, uh, uh, the furnace, if you will, and try it. So I've got many, many stories and examples, but I'll give you one. This is just on negotiating. We'll get to another thing in a minute. But on negotiating, I had a client that <clears throat> had a loan from the state, multi, multi-million dollar loan. Uh, they were in the assisted living facility business. And so they had patients that would live in their premises, like apartments type of thing, and they would take care of them. And so they had this loan at a high interest rate, maybe 9%, something like that. But it had been 11 years since they got the loan. And in that, in that 11 year period, 
the interest rates had fallen, but they were still paying the high rate. And so they had been asking for the previous two years, can we renegotiate? Can we do this? Can we? Can I just pay it off and go someplace else? The answer was always no. So I said, call them up. I'll come out and meet them at the state capitol. They declined. So there's nothing to talk about. Nothing. So he told me not to come. I said, I'm going to come anyway. And we did. I said, I'm going to show you something. And we took the book of Philemon and we wrote a letter. Now, what's in that letter? Well, there's 31 principles that are in that letter, 31 strategies, really, that are in that letter. <clears throat> One of which is in verse 10, he says, I want to talk to you about my son Onesimus. In negotiating and in sales, in life, period, he who defines the terms typically wins the argument. And so he doesn't say, I want to talk to you about your runaway slave. He said, I want to talk to you about my son, Onesimus. And he, he says to everybody that's going to be reading this letter and everybody that's read it on this end, he includes others to increase the impact of the decision, does all these incredible things. And so we put that in a letter to the state with as many of those 31 principles as we could, and we emailed it. And two weeks later, they contacted us and said, okay, basically we give. And they lowered my client's interest rate down to 3%, which was saving him $9,000 a month of interest. That's over $100,000 a year, 14 years left, $1.4 million in pure profit by doing that. So <clears throat> one of the things you can go in and, and look at is what are the negotiating secrets that are in scripture? There's plenty of them. But the other one is specific even more to sales is this. In sales, Wes, people think that telling is selling. You know, you, I was trained decades ago. You know, you suit up, you show up, you throw up. And, and that's what you do. Here's my, here's my presentation. No, selling is, is, is not that at all. Selling is the transference of passion, of conviction, of belief. Selling is not what I've been told, not what you've been probably told when you were younger. It's not that at all. And so if you're going to help somebody, you got to get on the same side of the table of them as them, and you have to find out what matters to them. So there are some questions that you should ask. And so I was never taught to ask any questions to speak of. But in the book of Numbers, in the Bible, Moses is getting ready to send 12 spies into the promised land. And he had seven questions he had to have answered in chapter 13. When you see seven in the Bible, my friends, when you see seven in the Bible, I would encourage you to look deeper. When I read that verses 17 to 20, those four verses with seven questions, I got on my knees in my office and I spent two days saying, God, what are the implications of these questions? And what is the application? Now, who spends two days on four verses for business. I'll tell you who, anybody that really wants to know that, you know, like God, show me this. And after two days, I, I, I got it. I wrote it out. And as it turned out to give your viewers a, a chance to understand this, just the way it worked out, I had a client that was in the air conditioning business. <clears throat> they were a wholesaler. So what that meant was they represented a famous brand of air conditioning units. And they didn't sell them to the public. They sold them to the dealers who in turn sold them to you. If your air goes out, you call the dealer. But they supplied the dealer, the brand. So that was the, the deal. 
And I happened to see this fellow, the owner. They had, I think, 18 salespeople in three states. And he said to me, hey, Michael, we're going to go call on a very large dealer here in Tennessee. We've been calling on this dealer twice a month, every month for six years. We've taken the man and his crew out for breakfast and lunch. I've been to his house for dinner. He's been to my home for dinner. We've gone to movies together with our wives. And yet in six years, I haven't got a nickel's worth of business. We're going again tomorrow. Uh, yeah, we're going tomorrow. What would you suggest I do? Well, I just finished studying this thing. I said, well, if it was me, I'd ask seven questions. He looked at me like, what'd you say? I don't think he was a believer at the time. I said, well, but really they're topics. And there's a lot of questions under each topic you could ask. He said, would you write them out for me, please? So I did. I wrote them out in a big 11 by 17 thing. And he took that questionnaire and he went to the guy that he's been calling on twice a month for six years, thinking, I don't know what they call it in Australia, but here in the, in the South of the United States, they call it the good old boy. The idea, if you're nice enough, long enough, you'll get the business. And sometimes it works, but a lot of times it doesn't. And it wasn't working for him. They like each other, but they weren't doing any business. So he went armed with this questioning strategy and he asked every question, which was not what I was suggesting, but he asked them all anyways. At the end of which he uncovered things that he had never uncovered before in six years. He'd never asked the right questions because the questions that Moses had to have answered, think about this. They were going to go into a land. They weren't going to be welcomed as you know conquering heroes. They're going to be like met with resistance, which meant there would be risk, but it's successful. There would be reward. Well, resistance, risk, and reward is what you and I and all of your customers deal with on a daily basis. All of your clients do. People resist their ideas. There's risk. I have to spend money, time, effort, whatever. I get rejection. I might lose my money on this. But if I'm successful, there's reward. So when I realized that's what Moses was facing, the implication of those questions became far more important. He wanted to know about the lay of the land. He wanted to know about the, the, the people that lived there. Were they strong or weak? Were they few or many? They wanted to know whether there was any wood there. I, what do you mean wood? Well, this is so important because with wood, what do you do? With wood, it wasn't, it wasn't like they were looking for something to roast marshmallows over. You built your life. You built your dreams. You built your vision. You built your homes, your boats, your farm implements. You built your life. You needed wood. So the, the implication is, when I'm talking to a client perspective, what are you building? What's your vision? What's your dream? What are you working towards? Because I want to come alongside you when I understand what it is and say, how can I apply what I know, what I have to come alongside you and help you get to where you're going, which is impossible if I have no idea where you're going. So that's just an example. One of the questions. Well, he he did. He had the meeting. The next day, the, the guy called him and said, I, I want a, a quote. He gave him a quote. And by Friday, because he met with him on Wednesday, by Friday, he had a purchase order for $60,000. Six years of nothing, one meeting, the right question, 60 grand. He called an emergency sales meeting, put me in a room with these 18 guys, and held up the piece of paper. He said, I don't know what this is. I hadn't told him yet. I don't know where he got this from, but I want every one of you using it. And Michael's going to teach you how to do it. So that's not the best way to be introduced to a group, by the way. But anyway, that was a deal. Now, this was the end of March. This is important because, as you know, air conditioning is a seasonal business. And in the United States, March is starting to get warm. And so I trained them the end of March. We're heading into April. They, the previous April, they'd done 1.2 million in sales. This April, they're hoping, 
they could get it up to 1.3, it'd be a good $100,000 increase. So that was their goal, 1.3. They didn't know if they're going to make it, but that's what they wanted. I trained them. The boss, the president made it a requirement that you will take this questionnaire and you will ask these questions. And so they did. At the end of the month, I came back and I checked with the president. How did the month turn out? Well, instead of doing 1.2 or 3 or 4 or 5 or 6 or 7, they did $1.75 million, a $550,000 increase like that. The president, he, 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 the color was drained out of his face. He was in shock. And he said, where did you get this from? And he was thinking, maybe I, I got it from people that I, I love and respect and know, like Zig Ziglar, who's gone on to be with the Lord, but other guys. Did you get it from him? Did you get it from, who'd you get this from? And I said, well, I, I learned it from Moses. Probably should have said it differently because he, he, I think he would have been less surprised though. I just cold cocked him. But at any rate, that's what I told him. And uh, they were absolutely blown away that how could this be? And I explained a little bit about it. But the point is, that took me two days of study and then application time and then proving it out. And with it, I have literally put or helped other companies put millions and millions of dollars in their coffers, if you will, because instead of it being presentation-based selling, it's question-based selling. It's putting the customer first, finding out what they need, why it matters, what you're up against, what's important to you. There's the, 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 the framework of those seven questions is incredibly important, very astute, and highly, highly effective. So that's an example of something that isn't just work hard, be honest, you know, tell the truth. It is a tactic, a strategy that is profoundly effective. And that's just one example. You know, there'd be a, there'd be a lot of people listening to this, watching this right now who are uh, laughing on the inside because uh, those that have been closer to me in our training programs have sat through basically my version of what you just said, like uh, questions are the answers, telling's not selling. Like uh, we have a question ladder, we have the 14 killer questions, we do exercises about it. I just hauled a bunch of people up on stage at a training last week and we just did questions. And it's, it's hard for people actually, because they want to tell to try and be an authority. But uh, the problem with telling is you've got a 50-50 chance at the end, <laughs> whether you're right, right? So it's, uh, it's not a good ratio. So um, it's cool to hear that from you. Can I, give, can I share an, ex an example, a practical way? Yeah. The, you know, Socrates, it's called the Socratic method. He taught the whole idea of questioning and that you can lead somebody to a conclusion by simply asking questions. Well, I use the Moses questioning strategy and I was with a client because what I used to do was I would travel with, I, I would contract with a client to train their salespeople, which included for me, oftentimes spending a day or so with various sales reps, going on calls with them to see how they did, what they performed and all that kind of stuff. And I went with one of their sales guys. They said, Michael, He's a good-looking guy. He, he seems so smart and likable, but he's been with us six months and hasn't made a sale. We don't know why. Spend a day with him and let us know what you think. So I did. And one of the calls that we made, I said to him, as I did at every call, why are we here? He said, well, a month ago, uh, they expressed interest in our equipment when they sold um, cutting tools that were like anywhere from $50,000 to a million dollars for um, industrial tool and dye shops, things like that. And so... He said, I, I, they were interested, so I, I uh, gave him a brochure and, 
you know, I thought I'd come back and see if they're ready to buy. And I said, well, did you give them a proposal? He said, I wrote $68,000 right on the brochure. Okay, so we walked in. And as it turned out, this is beautiful. The, the president happened to, this is a big company with hundreds of employees. He happened to come into the lobby at the same time we did. He came from the shop. And he saw the salesman, recognized him. He said, stop, you're too late. I just bought from your competitor yesterday. And the salesman literally turned on his heels and headed to the door. I stopped him. I said, excuse me, because I thought to myself, what could he possibly mean? Maybe he meant we just made a decision. So I said, excuse me, sir, I'm not with this company. I'm a consultant that was brought in to see how they, you know, well, they can serve their clients and serve customers. And evidently they didn't offer you something that you needed, but I'd like to understand when you say you bought from them, have you signed an agreement? He said, yes, we did it. We FedExed it to them yesterday. They, they would have gotten that this morning. I said, did you give them a check? He said, yes, they, they went with it. They got the, the contract and the check. And he said, furthermore, we have the equipment installed. We've had it for 30 days on a trial basis. We own the equipment. And he said, furthermore, it was $15,000 less for the very same thing. Well, it never is the very same thing. It was an inferior product, inferior brand, cheaper. I said, wow, $53,000. I'd love to see that. Now, I don't know anything about equipment at all. Don't even know where the on-off button is. Can we take a look? He was proud of it. He said, sure, come on back here. We go into the plant and the machine's operating. There's all the, it's part of an assembly line and there's an operator doing whatever it does, making airline parts or, or airplane parts, excuse me, or automobile parts, that kind of thing and metal. And so they're doing their thing. And while it's doing it, I'm asking them questions. The Moses questioning strategy. Tell me about your business. What do you do? And I asked a series of questions. While we were doing that, the machine that he had just bought made a loud thunk noise. I kind of jumped a little bit. I said, what was that? Oh, it's nothing. I said, well, it sounded like something. I thought I felt the vibration in my foot. Well, yeah, but I said, you see, you make precision parts. The part that he's working on right now, is it possible that it's maybe not as precise? It's out of tolerance a little bit? He said, yeah. I said, if that part goes through the entire assembly line, gets put in a box and shipped to a customer and it's faulty, what happens? I said, I said, do your customers mind? He said, well, yes, but we overnight them another part. I said, okay. I said, have you ever lost a customer because of that? Well, yes. Then I asked him the lifetime value of a customer, the average sale, the average, you know, a lot of questions like that. Great drops of blood were beginning to form on his forehead. <laughs> I'm kidding, but they were... And after a while, I said, you know, the supervisor came over and said, you know, we have uh, three days of, for right of rescission in that state, in Tennessee, legally a right of rescission, three days. I said, really, how's that work? Of course, I knew the answer. And what happened? Long story short, the guy said, uh, he, he was really stressed about this. I said, well, let me ask you something. What would you like? to do he said let's go for lunch we went for lunch talked about it some more came back he signed a contract gave us a check canceled his order got refunded and the only part i left out of the story unintentionally was this and it's a it was the critical factor maybe halfway through that was 
I'm just, I'm there as a, as a consultant, right? I'm not going in there saying, oh, Lord, what are you saying? I wasn't doing that. I'm a business guy doing business, you know, just doing it. But he speaks. And he said to me, you're going to walk out of here with the order, with the contract, the deal. I laughed out loud. They looked at me like, what are you laughing at? I said, it's never mind. I couldn't tell them. God just told me we're going to get it. So I hung in there and asked a lot of questions because I didn't know anything about the equipment. I didn't know what it did, how it operated, any of the features, benefits, or advantages. What I knew was how to ask questions. That, my friend, and you obviously are a champion of that, but that's what I do. And I'm sure you've got a very good method for that. I happen to learn mine from the book of numbers, and that's what I've been applying. I love it. You know, what I love so much about, you know, your worldview and what you're sharing and essentially you is you you have enough war stories that you're only teaching stuff that you've tested. You know, you, you would have read a bunch of theory in your life um, and then put a bunch of it to the test and chuck some out and, and, and kept the stuff that worked. And I think, I think we need more practitioners of people that teach rubber hits the road stuff um, than, than yeah. you know, what just gets spewed out year after year after year. So I just really appreciate that about you and what you stand for. I've got one last question for you. Actually, I might have two, but one. Let's start with one. Um, I think Paul said finally three times, so I've got a couple more up my sleeve. Um, I've heard you teach that it's the anointing that breaks the yoke. Um, and then you unpacked that a little bit in this teaching and said it's the prosperity that breaks the yoke, which would be offensive to some people because it's, it seems so um, secular or carnal or something, right? But, but can you unpack that for us? Because I feel like there's a lot of people in bondage, struggling, things like that. Just talk, talk us about that concept of the anointing that breaks the yoke or the prosperity that breaks the yoke. Well, sure. There's a, there's a word in Hebrew for that that is translated uh, as anointing. Um, it's also translated as oil. The, 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 the Young's literal translation translates it as prosperity will break the yoke. And reason why these words of prosperity and anointing oil uh, are used, because in the Hebrew, it's the same word. And in that day and age, in that day and age, oil it was liquid gold. If, 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 for example, in the Olympics, five, eight hundred years before Christ, in the Olympics that they had, whenever they were holding them, well before Christ, the, 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 the track star, the guy that won the foot race, got 2,500 kilos or, uh, of oil, which is about five years' wages. The, 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 the guy that won the, the chariot race got, got double that, which was 10 years' worth of wages. They paid him in liquid gold because it could be used as cash. You could take it and you could sell it. Proof in point is the, uh, um, the widow that Elisha went to who said, you know, my husband died and now the creditors have come and they want to take my two boys and make, you know, make them uh, prisoners, basically slaves. And what are we going to do? And he said, what do you got in the house? He said, well, I, I got some oil. And he said, well, I'll tell you what, get every empty container you can. And I'm going to and, and borrow from your neighbors as much as you possibly can. And he did. And then he prayed. They did whatever they did. And God miraculously filled every single vessel to the brim with this oil. And then he said, now go and sell it and pay off all your debts and live on the rest. And so you see, there's something that happens. I mean, I, I don't want to downplay or, or in any way minimize what people commonly think of as the anointing. 
where the spirit comes on you and you feel the freshness of the spirit and you, 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 I'm not minimizing or taking away from that at all, but there is an understanding. You have to look at the historical context and what was understood at that time. And it was the, this oil will, will bring you prosperity. And it works like this. The, think of it this way. When you're broke, you've probably been there sometime, maybe not, I don't know, but most people have <laughs> had things were tight. You don't have as much confidence. You, even when you have confidence, you, you're like, well, I'd love to go on that mission trip, but we can't. I'm tied down by lack and lack is ugly and lack holds you back from, hey, let's take, uh, a, go for the weekend and have a, have a break and then go do something nice or do something wonderful for the kids or do something nice for the neighbors or do whatever it is you do. And, and when you're in lack, you don't have options. But when you're in abundance, you have options. Now, the difference when you have, when you are prospering and you're doing well, those ropes that tied you down when you were in lack are no longer there. That yoke, the rope that tied you to a yoke that bound you is gone. And, and you know, I suspect, and people watching this know that whenever you've had when you've done well and you think, man, we're doing good now, it feels way different than you're afraid that the, the, the next letter you get in the mail is going to be a creditor or the next phone call is a creditor or something like that. It's a totally different world. And that prosperity breaks the yoke of bondage that people have from having lack. And so that is an understanding from the scriptures that I didn't know, but I looked into it at great length in the Hebrew and, and also historical context to find out that that is translated literally as prosperity will break the yoke. So I found that to be very interesting because it's true. As, as Solomon said, money answers everything. He also said, wisdom is a, a defense. By the way, by the way, money is a defense. He, you know, he's, hey, this is just reality. And when you have it, you have strength and you have options that you don't normally have. And so it's a good thing. Uh, that's awesome. Um, and I do have one more question, even though I said I may or may not. Um, and I've intentionally left this to the end. Um, you, you have, you've led a wonderful life. You've helped a whole lot of people. You've invested in your own knowledge, uh, built great businesses. But it wasn't always rosy. And I want you to just give us like the, you know, the, the two minute version of your childhood because it was, it was pretty average. Um, and I've left it to the end on purpose because I, I want people to have heard all of that good stuff. And then now I want them to have to wrestle with the fact that, yes, you've had favor from the Lord, but you've worked incredibly hard to get yourself into a better situation. Um, give us the two minute version of the childhood, because I know that it wasn't great. Thank you. Yeah. Um, you know, you you don't know anybody else's story, so you don't necessarily think of it as particularly bad. And certainly I know a lot of people who've had it worse. But, you know, um, my dad was married to a woman. They had three kids and they split up and he went with uh, another woman and who was a single mom. And I was the product of that union. They didn't get married for whatever reasons. And that lasted for about a three years. And then he said, look, if you're not going to marry me, we got to stop this. And she didn't want to do it because she thought she would go to hell. So she, they, they didn't do it. So they broke up. 
she took me and dropped me off at a doorstep. And I still remember at age three, the feeling of being completely abandoned in a stranger's place in the winter on a little stoop of a porch, wondering, where am I? Who are these people? And where's everybody that I know? And it was a very horrible feeling being orphaned like that. Anyways, my dad found out about it. And eventually he came back and he, he remarried his first wife who became my second mother. Now, I'm the love child, not exactly somebody you want to bring into the family with joy. But anyway, I'm in that family and that's fine. I have my brothers and sisters are older than me. It wasn't the best of relationship, best of things. In fact, two of my brothers in their adult years took their life. There was a lot of troubles that were there, evidently. And um, but when I was 11, my dad said, that's it. And he left her again and they divorced her for good. And he married a gal and they moved to Australia. So now I'm by my, I'm there. I'm with these other siblings and this is the only family I know. But I was kind of troubled and I decided to run away. And we, we me and a couple of buddies, we stole some money and we had, he, one of the guys had some guns and stuff. I didn't know he had them at the time, but he had all that stuff. And we were going to live on the streets and sleep in the subways. But I got picked up. Thankfully, by the police at nightfall. And so, you know, I told them that I'd been kidnapped. That wasn't I didn't admit to running away. And they, they took me down to the uh, the jail cell. And ultimately, they said, look, if you don't tell us the truth, we're going to strip you naked, beat you with a billy club, and throw you in with all these men. And they took me to the jail. There was On the other side of that bar were all these dangerous-looking people. So I sang, sang like a canary. I told them everything they wanted to know. I'm 11 years old. I don't know what they can and can't do. And so... Uh, I sat across from the detective and he called my stepmother and he said, your son has sociopathic tendencies. Uh, you need to get him professional help. Uh, he's going to be a problem to society. And so she took me and she dropped me off at another doorstep, which happened to be my, my father's mother. She said, I'll see you on Monday, but she didn't. That was the plan. I was the only one who didn't know. And they didn't come back. So that was a little bit, uh, okay. What's my new setting? And um, but then my dad came back from Australia. And when he came back, my life took on stability. My dad was a World War II vet, strict, all those kinds of things. But I had some very strict rules. And I grew up in that uh, from that point on, from age 11 to graduating from high school. Now, those years were kind of tough for me. But I did OK. I didn't get into a lot of sin like a lot of people do because I didn't have the opportunity. I was allowed to watch television one hour a week. I, I, I couldn't dress like anybody else. I couldn't have a hair like anybody else. I looked like a complete nerd. And I went through school like that just thinking, as soon as I can, I'm getting out of here. And I graduated early just so I could leave school and get a job. And I, and I got a job. And what happened was at age 17, 18, I was... I drove from British Columbia to Calgary, Alberta to go to a, a, a party. I'd never had anything to drink, hardly a few sips, and there was alcohol flowing. And on the way back, 650 miles back, uh, my friend drove, I passed out, and later on I took over driving. And as we're driving across the Rocky Mountains, I'm driving at 6.30 in the morning, the seats reclined, 
so I could be comfortable with my heels on the gas pedal flat to the floor of my mother's car going 85 miles an hour, according to the police. And I fell sound asleep on the Trans-Canada Highway in the Rockies, in the mountains. Woke up when we hit the gravel. And when I hit the gravel, I startled, I looked, and we were airborne going off the side of a mountain. And I looked at the trees. And as I'm passing by these trees, I remember thinking, this is the first time I've ever flown. And I was just looking at this sailing by. And then the car hit the, the nose on the first boulder on the way down. We tumbled all the way down, all the way down the mountain, end over end over end over end, endlessly, it seemed like. We were like two dice in a jar. We didn't have seatbelts on. But you know what? I wasn't scratched. I wasn't bruised. I wasn't injured. My friend had a couple of cuts, but other than that, we were fine. And on the way back, we had to hike up the hill. Our car was so far down, nobody even knew it was there. Hitchhike back into town and then caught a bus home, Greyhound bus, 400 and something miles from there. And I sat beside a guy who said, God must have a plan for your life. And two things happened, Wes. Number one, it was immediately revulsion. I, I don't want any of this religious crap. And number two, what if God does know me like he knows me? What if, what, what if, what if he likes me? What, what, what? What if he, what if he wants to give me a job, like you know, purpose like that? Matt, what, is that possible? And it was that thought that drew me to him, and he revealed himself to me in an amazing way, probably a month or so later. And you know, it's been a wonderful journey since that time. And so I kind of came from broken home, broken home, whatever, all that. People have a lot worse stories than me, so. I'm not looking for any sympathy. It just was, that's what it was. And then when I, when he came into my life and he put his spirit in me and he began to speak to me, he would talk to me. I, I, I said to him as a new Christian, I said, God, what about temptation? What do you do with that? He said, first Corinthians 10, 13. Well, I didn't know what that was. I didn't even have a Bible. I'm a teenager. But there was one in the guest bedroom. I remember getting up and going to it and opening it up and finding the book of Corinthians and going to the 10th chapter, reading the 13th verse. And it says, <clears throat> there is no temptation that's come unto you, but such as is common to man. And God will, with that temptation, make a way of escape. I shut the book like, oh my gosh, he talks to you. And it's been an incredible journey. And if I may say, uh, you know, in, in closing, a lot of the things that I've shared when it got to the end of last year, I was looking for some high ticket things I could do with clients. And I was praying about it. And God gave me a word. This is for me. It's not for you. It's not for Tom, Dick, or Harry. It's for me. He said, I didn't give you all of this wisdom so that only the people who could afford to pay the high ticket stuff could, um, could have it. I want you to make it available Across the board, God's best kept secrets. I said, well, Lord, how am I going to make a living? How's that going to work? I mean, how does that work? You know, these books are $15 a piece. They're a pack of four, so you get four of them. Uh, but that's it. I said, but okay, I will do it. And I wrote these four books, put them together in a bundle, and, you know, let people know about that. So that was a big thing for me, taking everything. And you know what? It's not like you write a book and... um the good stuff is someplace else. 
I did my best to put as much as I could into that page because, Wes, people in Australia know you guys have been through a real hard time, real hard time, a lot harder than I had to deal with here in Florida in the last couple of years. And we're not done. And we want to have influence. And if you're going to have influence in the marketplace, you need to learn how to have how to create value, how to really get to the bottom of things and help people. How do you conduct business? What is a business model? One of these books talks about the natural business model, which is a tree, which is the most incredible business model on the planet because it produces a product on a consistent basis. It utilizes resources, distributes them in a certain particular way, pays its vendors on time, and it produces consistently. How does it do it? You have 100 trees. You plant them in an orchard. Out of 100 trees, you come back five years later, as long as they have seven basic things, you know, warmth, water, light, air, so on, soil and seed. They have these seven things. They're going to, all 100 of them are going to be uh, successful. They're going to have their bearing fruit and having more trees and all that kind of stuff. You take 100 entrepreneurs and you come back five years later, as you noticed, only 4% of them will actually hit a million dollars of entrepreneurs that your 4% club. I love that. But here's another statistic. You may not have heard it quite like this. Um, you take a hundred people to start a business today and come back in five years. Only four of them will have done three things. A, they'll still be in business. Plus B, they will have at least one employee. So they're actually a business. And number three, they're profitable. Four out of a hundred. But trees are 100% successful. So what are the systems? What are the methodologies? What is the wisdom of God? What did he put into the system to make it work so flawlessly? I studied that at great length. I went to rainforest after rainforest after rainforest studying that. God told me one time, he said, I want you to go down to the rainforest. He said, everything you need to learn about business, you can learn in the rainforest. I was blown away. And I studied, I mean, I've, I've been to, I can't tell you how many trips, maybe a dozen trips, something like that, to these rainforests. The Smithsonian gave me access to all their scientific papers. I've studied this, and I'm telling you the best business model on the planet is a tree. But you have to learn how it operates. What makes it work? How does it take light and water and CO2, animal respiration, and take those three things and make wood out of it. How is that possible? How is it possible? How does it do it? And what does light represent in the Bible? What does water represent in the Bible? What is CO2? What are those things? And when you understand, <coughs> excuse me, the way God does, did stuff and does stuff, all of a sudden, everything opens up. And now you have a clear model of how you can start a business, grow a business, and succeed in business. And then take it with the biblical wisdom and learn the strategies, tactics, and principles and marry them together and fulfill what God wants. And I want to say one last thing about this. You know, everybody talks about, you know, wanting to be a big business. Well, I heard a friend of mine said this recently. He said, God is in the, the storm, the, the big rainfall. God's in the rainfall. But he said, he's also in the dew drop, the drop of dew that's on there. He's also in that. You don't have to be the whole show. You can be a dewdrop and fulfill the will of God. You don't have to be, you know, the biggest business on, in Australia. You just want to fulfill the purpose that God made you for. And once you start to find his ways and learn those, everything changes. Everything changes. We take the natural things that you and I have learned by observing other people, 
and by trial and error, and we immerse them in the scripture and, and wash anything off that doesn't need to be there. And, and now we get to be informed by God, by his word, by the Holy Spirit. We learn about marketing from Isaiah 11, and we also learn about it from John the Baptist. We learn about uh, Moses when he, he, the motivational secrets of the Ten Commandments, they actually guard and protect 10 legitimate motivational needs that everybody has. When you understand them, then you can cooperate with them and people will cooperate with you. We don't look at the Ten Commandments as, oh, that's a good thing to uh, help me succeed in business. But it is. It's amazing. And so the series that I've done, God's Best Kept Secrets, um, if I may say on my website, michaelpink.com, if it, that series is the most, it, it, it's my... my biggest work. It's it's my grand finale, if you will. It's everything I knew. And I put it out there because I felt like God said, give it away. Put it out there. Don't hold anything back because the time that we're living is important and and it's going to help a lot of people. So that's what I did. And, and I'm grateful that you invited me to be on this program and and to talk about that. And, and uh, if people want to know more about it, they can certainly stop by the website and join the Jesus School of Business if they care to and all those kinds of things. But this has been a tremendous honor and I really appreciate it, Wes. Yeah, thank you. And we'll link up those links to your website and the Jesus School and stuff like this because I'm sure people are going to want to buy the books and join, join your things because, you know, uh, you, you effectively proved two more things in your final remarks. One is the goodness of God. And the second thing is that your work ethic has paid off. To go from that, you know, story early age to now is a real blessing. And you've been a blessing to me just chatting with you for these last few minutes and you'll be a blessing to our audience. So, Mate, I just want to thank you, and uh, hopefully we get to connect somewhere in the U.S. or possibly over here in Australia in the future. And uh, we put on some conferences from time to time, so maybe we can uh, bring you over or something like that. You've been a real blessing, so we appreciate you. Uh, guys, uh, guys, uh, as you know, at the end of our podcast, we always do this thing where we go, okay, what was the top thing that jumped out to you? Michael literally gave us the gold that's in the bucket. Lots and lots of gold from the bucket. So I want you to kind of in the comments put there, what was the number one thing that jumped out to you from what Michael shared on this podcast? Bless you, Michael. And for those of you listening, we'll see you next week. Bye.